Good morning. Mark chapter 4. Uh, no, not Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. We're going to start reading in verse 12 in just a moment here. Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 12. I want us to start by doing a, just a little bit of a thought experiment, okay? So bear with me. I want you to imagine that Jesus is going to visit Faith Church next Sunday. He's going to sit in the back somewhere, watch our services, linger for our conversations. And of course, because he's God, he knows everything that's in our hearts and in our minds as we sing or as we listen or as we pray and so forth. So I want you to picture him in the back of our sanctuary, and he's kind of taking in the whole scene, and he's kind of reading our hearts because, again, he's gone. That's what he can do. Or or maybe let's shift the image just a little bit. Let's say Jesus spends this whole next week in your home. It's not a good sign, brother. And he doesn't say much, but he is evaluating. And let me ask you this. What do you think Jesus is looking for when he comes to Faith Church or when he comes to your home? What is he looking for? What kinds of things do you think he would commend about us or about you? And what kinds of things do you think he would expose or challenge in you or us? Okay, this is a little too convicting. We need to kind of move on from here, right? A little. <laughs> well, that's kind of what we have in our story this morning. Jesus, as you might recall, is in Jerusalem, and he's visiting the temple, and he's looking for something. Let's see what he's looking for. Read with me, starting in verse 12 of chapter 11. The next day, when they went out from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find out if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. They came to Jerusalem, and he went into the temple and began to throw out those throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling Father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoings. 
So what is Jesus looking for? What is Jesus looking for? Here's the main point of the passage. You'll see it also in your notes. Jesus is looking for fruit and not foliage. Jesus is looking for fruit and not foliage. This passage is a enacted parable. And so there's a lesson here. This fig tree episode is not just kind of random. This is one of Mark's famous sandwiches, okay? So what do I mean by that? Well, you see, there's three episodes in this section that we've just read. And the first piece of bread is the fig tree episode where the, tr- the tree gets cursed. The meat and cheese in the middle of the sandwich is the temple cleansing itself. And then that final bread underneath is the fig tree. Notice it comes back into the scene starting in verse 20. And Jesus has some lessons for us after that. Now, sandwiches, hopefully most of you uh, eat sandwiches this way. They're meant to be eaten together, right? You don't just kind of pick at the bread and then later pick at the meat and cheese. I mean, if that's you, that's a little strange. Sandwiches are meant to be eaten together. And so these three episodes are meant to be understood together. Now, what is Jesus driving at here in this story or these three episodes? We're trying to kind of find out what they mean together. Well, let's kind of back off a little bit and look at the scene that's been going on for the last couple verses. This is Passover week. At the end of this week, Jesus is going to be on a cross. The beginning of this week, thousands of Jewish pilgrims have arrived in Jerusalem. And we've got to know the temple is the centerpiece of their religious practice. On Sunday, the day before this episode, on Sunday, it was Passover, and Jesus enters Jerusalem to this fanfare, which, of course, quickly faded. Look with me at verse 11. He went into Jerusalem... This is after his quote-unquote triumphal entry. He went into Jerusalem and into the temple, and after looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So he goes to the temple, likely alone. He looks around the temple, likely alone, and he leaves, goes out of the city. And now it's Monday, the next day. What happens? He goes looking for this fig tree. He inspects this fig tree, and then he leaves. Just like what he had done the day before in the temple. Now, you might be thinking, goodness, Jesus, do you have something against fig trees? I mean, it's not even the season for fruit. Why are you condemning and cursing this fig tree? Well, remember, this is an object lesson. He's trying to teach his disciples something. In fact, look at verse 14. At the end of it, it says, and his disciples heard it as after he cursed it. And then look at verse 21 later. It says that Peter remembered what had occurred before. And what is Jesus teaching here? Well, he's teaching that he is interested in looking for fruits, but not foliage. Look at the end of verse 13. It says, when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. I mean, it's got some green on it, right? I mean, there's something about this fig tree that's kind of attractive, But Jesus says there's no fruit on the tree. This is what he found in the temple too. Now, it's not like it was empty or untapped or ignored. If we could transport ourselves back into the first century, we would have been in awe. And there was a flurry of religious activities taking place, lots of energetic enterprise and commerce taking place. There were likely thousands of people around the temple, all who journeyed 
to Jerusalem for religious reasons. It was impressive. But friends, flashy doesn't mean fruitful. In the modern American church, I think this takes on perhaps two forms, maybe more, and this is coming from a pastor friend of mine. One of those forms is religious formalism. This is kind of high church stuff, and we have maybe a little bit of it here, you know, liturgical moments and responsive readings and catechisms and pastors in robes, and we don't have that part, thankfully, but, but that kind of thing. And maybe some of you have grown up in those kinds of settings, and, and you can see how those sorts of church situations can be empty. You know, our liturgy can be empty if we don't inhabit the words on the screen with hearts that are truly engaged with God, right? So there's a danger there. There's also another danger, which I think is more prevalent today, and that's the danger of religious productionism. This is the lights, camera, action sort of church, personality-driven talks, emotionally-driven and experience-shaped music. I mean, these churches don't just have kind of one media staff hanging out, you know, behind one media board. They have a media department. They might have a media building. They have a media room. Friends, don't think that Jesus is impressed with any of this if there's no true spiritual life in the church. Big buildings, big budgets, every seat filled on Sundays. Gosh, they must be doing something right. What a healthy situation. I mean, that's life right there. God must be blessing them. It can be flashy, but it may not be fruitful. Foliage isn't fruit. Think of Jesus' indictment of the Pharisees. He called them whitewashed tombs. Beautiful on the outside, sparkly on the outside, maybe even attractive, certainly impressive on the outside, but rotting on the inside. Or think of Jesus' words in Revelation to the church in Sardis. This is Revelation chapter 3. He says, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Oh, man. I see your foliage, says Jesus. I see your leaves. But where's the fruit? Friends, it's possible to look good, but not be good. It's possible to do good, but have no good in our hearts. This is what Jesus is driving at in this passage. He's after heart-level fruit. So, so what kind of fruit is he looking for? Oh, I I don't know what you see here, but I see four pieces of fruit that Jesus commends, okay? Four pieces of fruit, and these are going to be our four points. And I'll just have you know from the outset, the first two points will be fairly lengthy, and the last two points will be fairly quick. Those, those are for you that are worried as we get to the end of that second point. I mean, here's the first fruit. You can look at this on your screen. The fruit the fruit of weighty worship, not the foliage of easy pragmatism. The fruit of weighty worship, not the foliage of easy pragmatism. Now put your eyes on verses 15 and following. Now, what is up with Jesus? What is he doing here? Why is he flipping over tables? Uh, John's gospel, I believe, talks about him flogging people with whips. One New Testament scholar who some of you probably know, and it may surprise you, he says this, quote, the story does not seem worthy of Jesus. There seems to be a petulance about it. Is Jesus acting like a spoiled child who doesn't get his way? 
I mean, did Jesus lose his temper here in the story? Does, does Jesus even have a temper to lose? I mean, let's be careful here. Jesus is a human, but Jesus is God. No, this isn't Jesus losing it and kind of going ape on this temple. Remember, he checked this place out the prior day. This is all premeditated. And we got to kind of get a picture of this magnificent site. This is a gorgeous, colossal temple with marble walls and gleaming gold pillars. And, and you got a picture, huge Passover crowds are filling up the steps to the great court of the Gentiles, a walled marble paved area adjacent to the south side of the temple. Now, how big is this area? I kid you not, we're talking about five football fields by three football fields. Okay, this is approximately 35 acres of real estate. Now, this was the furthest place the Gentiles could go. Okay, so it's kind of the outer courts. So they can go up to this kind of outer court. And then there was the court for the women. That's as far as the women could go. Then there's the court for the Jewish men. And then finally, the court for the priests, the temple proper. And then finally, within the temple, in the inner sanctum, it's the only place the holy or the high priest could go, but only once a year. But friends, I want you to notice something about this scene here. What took up real estate in this outer Gentile court wasn't throngs of worshiping and praying Gentiles. Jesus saw, notice, money changers and sellers and buyers and animals. Understand that people were coming in from all over the Roman Empire. And they had different currencies, so they'd have to exchange their money in order to pay the temple tax. And then with some of their money, they'd purchase a pigeon or a dove or a lamb for their sacrifice. So Jesus likely saw stalls selling livestock and fowl and wine and salt for the sacrifices. Josephus, who is a Jewish historian, wrote that during the Passover, this is about 30 years after this scene, there were 250,000 lambs offered. So we got to picture this, right? Imagine the noise, merchants shouting from their stalls, the moaning of the livestock and the squawking of the birds, noisy, haggling, pushy pilgrims jostling one another for position. It probably smelled and looked and sounded a lot like a county fair mashed up with a stock exchange. Okay, and, and notice, notice in verse 16, at the end of verse 16, Talks about people carrying goods through this temple area. And what's that all about? Well, you have to understand that this outer court was used as a convenient cross-town route. So to get to most places in Jerusalem, you would need to walk through this outer area. That's the way they, the Israelites, had set up things in Jerusalem. So what is the big deal, Jesus? What's going on here? Sure, there might have been some extortion going on. Notice he calls it a den of thieves, but... There was something deeper, of course, going on. Jesus is concerned that their actions trivialized this sacred space. It's fine for them to exchange money, right? I mean, sell animals and, and, and travel to other parts of the city. All that is fine. And, and they needed those animals in order to make the sacrifices. But, but I think Jesus is concerned. He, he's thinking to himself, listen, not here. Find another place to do this stuff. This isn't what the temple is for. The temple isn't supposed to be a garage sale. It's a holy space where you meet God and you pray. This has been holy ground for a thousand years for this nation. Ever since Solomon finished his dedication prayer and the glory of the Lord so filled this temple and so shook the ground around it that the priests 
couldn't stand. This was the place where all Israel knelt on the pavement outside as they saw the fire of the glory of God descend upon this temple. And 250 years later, Isaiah would walk into the temple, as we read earlier, and see the Lord majestically enthroned above him with glowing, glowing angels swirling around, crying out as we read, holy, holy, holy. And those voices boomed in such a way that the foundation of that temple swayed. This is holy ground for Israel. But they're treating it like it's the county fair. Instead of worship, the people of Israel have settled into an easy pragmatism. They're treating God too casually. They're more interested in what's most convenient and what's most practical And just like that, prayer and worship and reverence are out the door. God has become weightless to them. Israel, I think in this story, is taking God too lightly. It's interesting, the Hebrew word for glory, kabod, comes from the same root as the word weighty, kabed. The glory of God is his weightiness. We're not talking course, about literal weights. We're talking about the seriousness in which God must be taken. God is substantial. God is supreme because he is the holy other, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy other. He is cut from a different cloth. He's not just a greater entity uh, in comparison to us. He is completely different, sui generis. And therefore, he is substantial and supreme And as one of my friends said earlier this week to me, God is maximally all of his attributes. This is what Israel is missing, friends. They have domesticated their God. They have replaced true worship, weighty worship, with a sort of easy pragmatism. What about us today? Do we take God seriously or do we take God lightly? You know, the church today has all kinds of dangers dangers that we face. Uh, you've got the the new atheists, you know, guys like Richard Dawkins that are assaulting the existence of God. You've got, of course, the secularizing of our society in the realm of personhood and ethics and all kinds of other perhaps persecutions and difficulties that the churches face. But I'm really not as worried about those things. I'm more concerned that the church, I believe at times, is taking God too lightly, trivializing him, approaching him too casually to the point where there is no weightiness in our worship. What about our worship services here at Faith Church? How do you think about that? I know too often we are concerned about having fun or deriving some sort of quick pleasure or having an emotional experience in our churches. But what if the experience God is after is more like staring at the Grand Canyon and recognizing the bigness of God the Creator than the quick thrill of riding Orion at King's Island. The fruit Jesus is looking for is the slow-growing kinds with deep roots. Look again at the scene. There's, there's no room in the outer court. Notice for prayer. I mean, this is supposed to be a house of prayer for them. And you, you would have noticed from the passage that Ashley read earlier that it was supposed to be a house for the nations to pray. And these outer courts in particular, you know, prayer doesn't fit the modern worship template, does it? It's slow. You know, it's kind of boring. I mean, 
Adam, did you have to really pray for three or four minutes? I mean, can't you have just offered up a quick transitional prayer so that the other guy can get up and speak? And, you know, th those moments are fine, right? Transitional moments are fine. It's nice to have a quick jolt of spirituality before the main thing, which is maybe the singing or the sermon or whatever. Brothers and sisters, we got to lean into our liturgical moments, whether it's silent confession or the elder prayer or songs that may not make you feel like you're at a U2 concert, but the words, I mean, the words to holy, 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 they're so rich, aren't they? If we can connect our hearts to those words, it doesn't, it almost doesn't matter what's going around with the music. So let me encourage you to connect your heart to these moments. You may not experience spiritual fireworks, but boy, it can be still edifying. So this outer court, there's no room for prayer, but there's also no room for the nations. Remember a couple weeks ago, as Jesus walked into Jerusalem, that quote-unquote triumphal entry, what was on his mind? We talked about how the nations were on his mind. He was fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9. What was on Israel's mind as they were waving those palm branches? Only themselves, right? Go Ohio, you know? Go America. That's kind of what they were thinking. We see that exact mentality here in the outer courts. It was impossible to concentrate on anything, much less pray and worship in these outer courts. And so this desecration of the court of the Gentiles was a massive national sin, not only against God, but against the lost people of the world who had come there to worship God. Friends, it is so easy, isn't it, to lose sight of those who are far from God. When God is taken too lightly, it's easy to make a lot of room, a whole lot of room for ourselves and no room for outsiders. But when God is weighty in our hearts, then his plans and his purposes mean something, don't they? And as we start to scan in the scriptures, whether it's Isaiah 56 or other passages, we start to see his great heart, not just for me, but for us, and not just for us, but for them. Do we have that sort of heart as well? You know, there's a reverence of God that compels us to look outside ourselves, to be concerned about our lost neighbors and friends and loved ones, those who may be sitting at the Thanksgiving table on Thursday who don't know Jesus. Maybe that's our court of Gentiles this week, the Thanksgiving table. When a lost friend who is seeking Christ is with us, when they enter our church or enter our home or enter our lives in any, any way, enter the court of Gentiles that we happen to have some kind of ownership over, may our lives say to them that God is alive, that he is holy, that his son is glorious, that salvation is freely offered to all who repent and believe. May we not squander those opportunities by treating God too casually before them. That's the first fruit. Here's the second fruit. As we look at verses 18 through 22, the fruit of singular faith, not the foliage of empty tradition. Let me read verses 18 through 22 as a way to review. The chief priests and the scribes heard it, they heard Jesus, and started looking for a way to kill him. For they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. Whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. 
Early in the morning, as they were passing by and they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up, then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus replied to them, have faith in God. So the crowds are, you know, starting to love Jesus again. You know, they're kind of pretty fickle up and down with Jesus. Notice the religious leaders. They're looking to kill him now. So no one, I want you to notice this, no one is repenting after hearing Jesus' rebuke. So meanwhile, Jesus and his disciples, they leave the city again. And in the morning, the next day, they pass by that same fig tree again. And Peter notices it. And he notices that it's completely withered. Such a graphic warning a fig tree with foliage, but now it's dead and it's withered at its root. So it's totally gone. What a scathing picture of the first century temple. And we got to understand there was huge national pride in this building. All these important events took place there. You know, sacrifices took place there. Pilgrims came to this place each year. It spoke to Israel's resistance to Rome. You know, it's kind of like having one building for our capital and the Lincoln Memorial and the church, all kind of together in one building, if you can imagine that, right? So Jesus is saying, sure, sure, there's a lot of activity going on here, but y'all are wrongly trusting in the temple rather than the God of the temple. Jeremiah 7 is really helpful to gain understanding in what's going on here. So you can read it more later. But Jeremiah, here's a word from the Lord. Uh, and, and the word from the Lord is that he needs to rebuke the people because they're living sinful lives. But they're saying with their words, they're saying out loud, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. You know, it doesn't matter how we're living or what's in our hearts. We've got the temple. And so they were treating the temple like it's a safe place, a place to protect themselves from God's judgment because they've been sinful. They're participating in temple rituals, but they weren't serious about pursuing God. They had more faith in their traditions than they had actual faith in God. This is why Jesus says in his response, again, have faith in God. Why did Jesus say that? Well, Jesus is saying, don't put your faith in the withering tree. It's dead, but keep your faith in God. Israel's traditions weren't bad. I want to make that really clear. They weren't bad, but they were meant to lead them to God. But the people were trusting these traditions more than they were trusting God. Now, of course, we could do the same thing, right? We have a way of doing things here at Faith Church, you know, uh, the tradition of maybe certain songs and hymns that we sing or raising your hands, you know, to express worship to God, certain patterns of worship, choices we've made even as a church, commitments to certain things. And these aren't all bad. Make sure you hear me when I say that. But friends, if our assurance before God, if why you have confidence comes from anything except the gospel of Jesus Christ, then it's a false assurance and a false religion, isn't it? I feel right now because, because our church does these things and, and we worship in this way and we avoid these things and we have these commitments, you know, I feel good. Friends, our assurance can only come from the gospel, from Christ's work on the cross. Every church I've served at, I've served at maybe three churches, and every church has had its traditions. And sometimes those traditions are helpful, and sometimes those traditions are actually tempting. They tempt the people away from God. Maybe for a season they were great, but sometimes you have to put those traditions down for the sake of continuing 
to worship the Lord truly and genuinely. So what are those faith church traditions that are unhelpful? What are our sacred cows that we wrongly put our faith in? Can you think of something? I'm going to take a little risk here. It's not in my notes. I'm going to say one thing, one thing. And if you get mad at me, remember the fourth point about forgiveness, okay? So I found at times here at Faith Church a propensity, a propensity to love our bylaws more than we love this book. And I want you to hear me say that. Sometimes the bylaws are quoted more than the scriptures in this church. And that deeply is concerning to me. Now, the bylaws aren't a kind of formal tradition we have, but maybe the tradition of resting on the bylaws or thinking about the bylaws or uh, quoting the bylaws, maybe that in and of itself can be harmful. Maybe, right? I'm not saying get rid of the bylaws. Just to be clear, every church needs a set of bylaws. But what are we trusting in? What are we hoping in? And I believe, I'm going to take one more risk. I think one of the reasons, one of the reasons this church has the level of bylaws that we do is because over the course of the last 45 plus years of its existence, the church has been hurt. And so the level of trust what I would call sometimes inappropriate in our bylaws is really a reaction, I believe, to what has occurred in the past. So I, I, I want to acknowledge and, and really have compassion when I think about that. But I believe there's a misplaced trust in our bylaws. I want you to think about that. Here's the third fruit. Remember, the third and fourth are going to go by quick, okay? Hopefully. We'll see. Remember the fourth fruit if you're mad at me right now, okay? The third fruit is this, the fruit of bold prayer, not the foliage of small expectation. Look at verses 23 and 24. Do you see that? Jesus is saying, have faith in the God who can do impossible things. He can move mountains. So a natural action, if we have this singular faith in God, is prayer. We've talked about it some, but I want you to see again that bold prayer is a fruit that Jesus is looking for in us. If Jesus were to visit Faith Church, would he see that we are a praying church? Would he see us during the week as a praying disciple? What sorts of prayers are we praying? You know, too often we pray for small things, not unimportant, but small, healing from a cold, getting that promotion doing well in the soccer game. I'm not saying don't pray for these things. Please hear me. But do we pray as Jesus instructs here? Pray in light of a big God, and in other words, pray big prayers in light of a big God. That's what he's commending here, right? Do we pray big prayers for seemingly impossible things? Or, our, or are our expectations too small? You know, I'm personally convicted by this. I think I can grow personally in my prayer life. I was also thinking about our prayer service. Why is it, friends, that our morning services typically fill up, but our prayer services are typically sparse? Why is that? Let's take Jesus' words seriously here. Let's grow in our commitment to pray and pray together. Okay, something to think about. Here's the fourth fruit. 
the fruit of radical forgiveness, not the foliage of massed bitterness. Let's read verse 25 together. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. It's so interesting that Jesus would go here. I mean, he, he can pick lots of different kind of fruit or examples of fruit, but he goes to uh, forgiveness. He could have chosen a whole lot of heart-level indicators, right? But for Jesus, forgiveness is important. Our level of forgiveness is a major indicator of where our hearts truly lie. How we relate to others is a barometer, in fact, for how we relate to God, according to Jesus. So if you have a real unhypocritical faith in God, you will not only pray big, but you will forgive big. Are you a forgiver, friend? Is it easy for you or is it difficult for you? Well, in some ways, forgiveness is always difficult. C.S. Lewis says, quote, everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until he is called to forgive. It's not easy. But I want you to notice again, as you put your eyes on verse 25, failing to forgive reveals a tragic double standard in us. When others fail us, we tend to put the spotlight on their evil actions. When we fail others, we tend to put the spotlight on our good intentions, right? But there is a grave warning that Jesus issues here in verse 25. Jesus takes forgiveness so seriously because God's forgiveness of us and our forgiveness of others are so inseparably linked if we will not forgive, it calls into question whether or not we really believe the gospel. It calls into question whether we really are, dare I say, Christians. This is why forgiveness is a fruit that Jesus is looking for, not the foliage of masked bitterness. That's what we're tempted to do, right? But bearing a sort of internal unforgiveness and bitterness that's kind of rotting our soul slowly while putting on a good show of, I'm fine. I kind of want to murder him, but I'm fine. I'll give him the cold shoulder, but I'm fine. I won't really talk to him in an engaging sort of way, but I'm fine. You know? Friends, forgiveness is commanded in the Bible. You and I don't have the option to not forgive here within Faith's church. This is one of the fruits Jesus is looking for. Consider Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 32. It says this, wonderfully um, informing verse, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Extraordinary little verse, isn't it? And Jesus has forgiven you, Christian. How patient, how kind, how compassionate compassionate he's been with you. He could destroy you because of all your sins, but he hasn't. He's forgiven you. So if you put your faith in a Messiah who forgives all of your sins, how can you then withhold forgiveness from someone else, especially a brother or sister whose sins are forgiven by God? So there you have it. Okay, so four pieces of fruit that Jesus is looking for, weighty worship, Singular faith, bold prayer, radical forgiveness. I want to close up shop here by exploring one more important theme, which I think is key to understanding this passage. Typically, we think of Jesus cleansing the temple and kind of driving out the bad and restoring the good, right? And, and it seems like that's the case. You'll notice the sermon title is Jesus the Temple Cleanser. 
I probably, you know, by the time I got to working on this conclusion, I probably would have changed the title around. Because if you read this story as the meat, as the meat, and considering the meat and cheese between the bread, if we read this story in the context of the fig tree, okay, let's now look at the sandwich part, the, the bread part. What do we get? Well, friends, Jesus isn't cleansing and reforming the temple. He's cursing it and replacing it. So the sermon could be called Jesus the Temple Replacer. The temple in its entire system is coming to an end. Jesus is bringing it down, and he will replace it with who or with what? With himself, right? All of a sudden, worship is no longer going to be about a place. It's going to be about a person. In Mark chapter 13, Jesus predicts that the physical temple will be destroyed. That will happen in 70 A.D., 40 years after his death. In Mark chapter 14, his words about destroying this temple that is made with hands, and in three days he's going to rebuild another, and that new temple is not made with human hands. What's he talking about there? And then I want you to see this. Turn now to Mark chapter 15. Flip a few pages over. And we're going to start reading chapter 15 in verse 33. And I want you to see what happens at the very end of Jesus' life. Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 33. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lamak Sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, see, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a stick, offered him a drink, and said, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. And Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. And then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. I wonder whether you noticed the reference to the temple, you know, as this clear, final indicator that the system of Israel's temple is coming down. Now it's this curtain, curtain, excuse me, that's torn in two. And notice from top to bottom, as if God's very own hands from heaven is doing it. What a statement God is making here. What is that statement? God is saying to us today. You don't need pigeons, you don't need lambs, you don't need currency tables, because Jesus' death on this cross will be the once-for-all sacrifice for sins. You don't need this curtain, you don't need this barrier, because Jesus has made a way for all peoples, all nations, to come into the Holy of Holies and enjoy the presence of God. You don't need this temple, this structure, because Jesus himself is the temple of God, the very presence of God for you. And as the New Testament, New Covenant people of God, he sent his spirit to dwell you. So you now, church, are the temple of God. You see, friends, Jesus came into Jerusalem looking to disrupt the old ways of religion and bring about a better way of relating to God. It's not religious formalism or religious productionism that brings you to God. It's Jesus. And so the question I want to leave you with is, is very simple. Do you know Jesus? 
That's the most important question this morning. Do you know him? Do you depend on him for everything in your life? Do you abide in him so he will produce this kind of fruit in you? You can only be fruitful through Jesus, according to John chapter 15, who says, abide in me. Ultimately, the fruit isn't in you, it's in Jesus. The fruit of the Spirit will come only to the extent that you practically and daily depend on Jesus. So what do people get when they bite into your life? What about when people bite into faith church? Do they get the fruit of the Spirit? They get kind of some gross foliage? They're kind of drawn to you. Oh, look, there's foliage. There's something going on here. But as they kind of bite into your life or bite into the life of faith church, they get something that's not real, not of substance. Is there real life here at faith church? I just want to encourage you. Yes, I see it every Sunday morning. But we can keep growing in this, can't we? One of our missionaries, uh, Chris Phillips, you know, many of you know him. He visits us maybe a couple times a year, something like that. And and every time he visits, he'll pull me aside and he'll say, there's new life in this church. And I, I'm just so encouraged and thankful for just little testimonies like that. So yes, there's new life in this church, but we can keep growing in this, right? There's still pockets in our own lives or pockets of a church of hypocrisy. And so there's more fruits to go after. So today, brothers and sisters, be warned, but also be encouraged. Be warned in this way. God is not pleased by religious attendance and slick spiritual talk and bylaw adherence, however impressive, if it covers up a hollow heart and a disobedient life. That's all foliage to Jesus. No life there, no fruit there. But thankfully, God works with incomplete disciples and imperfect churches. He died for hypocrites. You hear that? He died for hypocrites like you and like me. His blood shed on the cross covers every hollow heart that is going through the religious motions. He loves to work with those who are contrite and desperate and recognize their need for inside-outside transformation. He gives grace to the humble. Isn't that good news? Those who deal honestly with their sins and weaknesses and hypocrisies, Jesus says, come on, let's go. Isn't that good news? So what is Jesus looking for in your life and mine? He's looking for fruit and not foliage. Amen. Let's take a moment to consider this passage and prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper.